Welcome tonight to uh, School of Psych Podcast. We're really happy tonight to have Dr. Shaw here. We're going to be talking about evidence-based practices and how that translates into real-world, real-life implementation. Um, in order to kind of get the discussion rolling a little bit, we asked some of you guys through Facebook uh, a poll, um, a question that was kind of relevant to our discussion tonight. And the question was, um, what are the most significant uh, impediments to using research-based practices in school psychology in your setting? Now, the majority of you seem to indicate that um, the lack of teacher or faculty buy-in is our biggest problem with 84 votes for that one, followed by um, a tie between lack of staffing, uh, 43 votes, as well as inadequate uh, resources. Then a couple um, other impediments to research-based practices would be not enough time, lack of administration, administrative support um, and a need for more professional development. So um, thanks to everybody who participated and we can kind of think about that a little bit during our discussion tonight. But um, before we introduce our guests, um, first off I wanted to say um, I'm Rachel, I'm a school psychologist, I'm working in the state of Maryland. I'm going to turn it over to Anna. Hi, I'm Anna, I'm a school psych working in New York State. Rebecca? Hi, I'm Rebecca, and I'm a school psych working in the great state of Connecticut. I want to remind you guys of how to participate tonight. Um, if you're watching out there and you are on social media, on Facebook, um, comment on the School Psyched Your School Psychologist page, the School Psyched Podcast page, anywhere on the page or in messages, or on Twitter using the hashtag Psyched Podcast. And also, if you're watching this video on YouTube Live, you will see a column right next to our video screen where you can feel free to add um, any thoughts, ideas, questions, or comments. I'll be looking for you guys out there. I want to in introduce our great guest. We're so excited to have Dr. Stephen Shaw on the show tonight. We have been big fans for so many reasons. Dr. Shaw is an associate professor in the Department of Educational and Counseling Psychology at McGill University in Montreal. He is the graduate program director of the School Applied Child Psychology Program. He earned a Ph.D. in school psychology from the University of Florida in 1991. Before entering academia, he had 17 years of experience as a school psychologist in school, university, hospital, medical school, and independent practice. His clinical and research interests include pediatric school psychology, improving education of children with rare genetic disorders and autism, and development of resilience skills in children at risk for academic failure. He has over 100 180 scholarly publications and, the, and presentations, and he has uh, published four books. He is on the editorial board of seven international scholarly, scholarly journals, Yay. associate editor of the Canadian Journal of School Psychology, and is the editor of School Psychology Forum. For three more weeks, that part I didn't know. Dr. Shaw, welcome. <laughs> How are you? Thank you. What will Thank we do in three weeks, first of all? <laughs> well, we have a good editor taking over. Okay. <laughs> Oliver, Oliver Edwards is going to do a great job. Wonderful. It'll be a lot of fun. Thank you so much for being here. We're very much looking forward to talking about how to make evidence-based practices work in the real world. Can you tell us a little bit about, um, I, I, in my uh, Google research, I discovered an article that you had written a while ago for Communique on this topic. Um, what do you think about evidence-based practices in the real world? Well, I think it's much harder than we think it is. That's, that's my big concern, in that uh, 
we talk about evidence-based practices as if it were something very easy to do. And the fact is, it's so difficult to do. I don't think we quite have an understanding. And of course, in the US, you have legislation. <laughs> I like the cattail. Uh, you have legislation that requires you to have this when in fact, that's very difficult to do for, and uh, this comes from medicine, which was 1992 when they first uh, introduced evidence-based practices to medicine. When is even in medicine, they're not so sure what evidence-based practices really means, and they have it much easier to do because usually they're really simple. A medication or a surgical procedure where ours, not only do we have to have a practice that works, we actually have to implement it. Mm -hmm. um, and my analogy is to like weight loss. We have evidence-based practice. We know what works. That's an exercise. But knowing what works is barely any part of the battle at all. And all this emphasis on what works is a little bit off. Maybe focus on how to do it. Exercise works, but can we do it? Mm, not most people can't with evidence-based practice, even though it's very hard to determine whether something works, it's even harder to implement it. So that's where we are now of the situation where even, you know, we have the what works clearinghouse and a lot of what works activities about how to implement it. And that's just as important, if not more important. So it's a struggle, but it's exciting. It's an exciting opportunity. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, were you first um, thinking about that and noticing uh, that in your um, time as a student or in your practice in schools or at the university level? When do you think that became the most um, clear for you? I think it's still becoming clear. Um, I don't want to say I have the answers. In fact, uh, I think a lot of this came from just doing research on skills for low-functioning students and for immigrant students mm -hmm. and learning that uh, the big problems were one we didn't know and then we didn't know how to do it and the problems we were seeing is that we would take research that shows a particular practice is effective but the research may have been done in class high students dollar grant with 27 graduate assistants helping and now we're supposed to expect a single teacher with 30 students and no resources to implement that same program it's just mm -hmm. not possible there's as, as in your poll was mentioning one of the problems is just total lack of resources um, and if you're a teacher time is your biggest resource mm -hmm. and it's gonna take so much time oh my goodness so to do in, in an awful lot of good stuff that made sense to me. Um, and then we get to practice. We, we work in a lot of school boards, so that's fun. Mm -hmm. um, we're getting reports from the chat box that um, maybe our audio might be a little bit choppy, so if you guys can keep us up to date. And it seems like it's mostly you, Dr. Shaw, not to put you on uh -oh. the spot there. <laughs> um, <laughs> so... Um, We'll try and keep that in mind. And if it gets worse, I don't think it's too terrible. We might ask you to leave the hangout and then jump back in. Um, I don't know. Okay. Um, yeah, let me know what, what you need from me. Yeah, that sounds better, I think. 
That sounds good right now. Don't move. <laughs> Stay like that. <laughs> but I, you know, I think that's a really good point when, when you talked about, um, you know, maybe in the research they're implementing this with, with all these supports and all these people involved, and then it kind of gets kicked back to the school and we don't have you have the resources and the time and the, the training to be able to do this exactly how it was done maybe in that research setting so right right so, and so um, much of the research seems to you know be designed for such well needs to be designed for such specific purposes and if those purposes don't exactly match your goals in your building or your population um, then you know how it, it seems it seems to make sense to me that it wouldn't you, you wouldn't be able to apply even if a practice was evidence based once you try to apply it in a completely different um, with a completely different range of situations and a different population mm -hmm. and and then all these barriers you know the lack of time for faculty training um, it just makes sense to me that it's a really uphill battle so um, are are there evidence based practices that are sort of more simple? Is there a sort of a foundational level of evidence-based practice where we should start? Well, I think, and this is just uh, as I'm really beginning to study this in some real great detail, I don't think it's the practices that are the issue. I think it's the process that we go to implement them that's the issue. Mm -hmm. And this is where, you know, we've developed a model that is kind of in contrast to the, the common model that we see now, which is teachers agree to use an intervention, hopefully evidence-based. We monitor the teacher to make sure they implement it with integrity or with fidelity. And, and this approach, to some degree, feel like they're coerced, that they're being watched. Mm -hmm. And so it even makes it harder for them. I know that that's uh, the common practice in school psychology. But what, um, even though that's the common practice, I'm not convinced that's the right way. Actually, different methods. So, yes, obviously that you want interventions that take as few resources as possible. But, you know, as, and that works well on tier one and tier two. But when we get to more complex interventions that focus on a few children, tier two interventions, um, that level of of um, level of of implementation takes so much energy and time and expertise and money sometimes, mm -hmm. um, and so so I, th I think it's the process more than the intervention itself, and I think that's one thing that I've really been working on quite a bit is develop a better model that makes teachers happier and takes advantage of the professionalism that we have amongst all these teachers and stops treating teachers like automatons who should just implement everything we say. Um, we have an awful lot of professional teachers out there who have brilliant ideas, and I think take advantage of those, our uh, quality of interventions and likelihood of implementation. I think that's, that's so true. I mean, with that number one response on our poll being kind of lack of buy-in with teachers, I, I think that... Um, 
we, we need to support our teachers and be kind of on the same page with them and realize what they're going through. I mean, my husband is a teacher and he'll even go to me and say, you don't know what it's like to be a teacher. And I'm like, I'm, you know, I feel like I'm in the schools all the time and I'm married to a teacher. Like, I feel like I should know how, you know, I understand teachers a little bit, but he's like, no, you really don't, you know? So it, it is hard to, um, to realize that we don't know what it's like to be in their shoes, to be, um, you know, have 30 kids in a classroom that you're responsible for all the time and you can't, you know, have a bathroom break and, and all that stuff. Um, and even when I'm writing things, like if I'm writing a BIP and I'm, you know, I can, I've told teachers that I can write the best BIP in the world, but it doesn't mean anything if you as a teacher don't feel comfortable implementing it or if I'm telling you that this is how it should be and you're thinking in the back of your mind, I can't do this, this is not feasible. Um, then we're kind of at a standstill. <laughs> so. it's, it's true. And that's, let, whoops, did you lose me there for a minute? Yes. Okay. Okay, well, let me explain the, 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 the type of model that we use that we've developed, and it seems to have so far a lot of support, and we're just starting to first um, on it and we're working in a lot of school boards. Right now we're in a school boards are uh, school districts. We're working in school districts in French and English and Polish, uh, in the US, Canada. It's really fun to do, but here, here's our model. It's really quick. We call it an open source analogy model. It's very similar to open source software. The thing is all the interventions are free. I'm a believer that that's one of our problems that too many people want you to purchase their book, consultation, what have you, and it costs money. They have no interest in making it better or making it fit what you need. So everything we do is free. Everything we do can be modified based on what the users need, just like open source software. If you need it, you can change it. It's yours. The advantage I get as a researcher is I get teacher ideas. It's almost like a crowdsource situation. So what we do is we develop an intervention to show it leads to the outcomes we want. This is usually where things end. Treat that as, that's just a proof of concept. It just proves the concept can work, but says nothing about it can be implemented. So we do that first to show that our ideas or our interventions work. And we'll post the website can get all of the interventions that we have validated for free. So we have those. Um, and then we break them down. We task analyze them into each component of the intervention. Then our theories, like, a, like we have an emotional regulation intervention. It's a 10 session, or it's a, yeah, 10 sessions uh, lesson plan based on a theory of, of, of emotional regulation. Then we can break it down into pieces this, but they can modify it to meet their needs. They can change the examples. They can change how long it takes. Instead of doing sessions, they can do 15-minute sessions. They can modify things to make it more relevant to their children. They can change the language. We have a lot of, a lot of schools without English or French speakers. Also, we, have, we work in French schools. Um, so they can change it to be culturally responsive to the kids. They can change it to meet the teacher's needs for time, energy, expertise. Change it however they want with the outcome. 
all the teachers have to do is tell us what they did to change it. Evaluate, and if we do this in maybe 100 or 200 different classrooms, which we are right now, patients work best. We can give teachers feedback. You made this change from our program. Then what we get is information to say, wow, these teachers with their expertise, they made our intervention way better than it was before. So our stuff continues to improve and get better all the time. And also teachers have ownership. It's theirs. They made it as they had permission to do so based on what they needed in terms of time, expertise, energy. We also have ways for them to contact us if they need feedback or if something didn't work or if they want to make changes. Mostly our job is to say, wow, that's a great idea. <laughs> but, uh, but they have ownership and permission to innovate. We treat them like professionals, not like someone who's simply applying our work. And by doing this, we, we do the program evaluation and data support because that's our thing. We do the research. But now we have teachers who have autonomy. They have professionalism. Mm -hmm. They have interventions that because we don't know what's happening when a teacher has a class that's half Spanish speakers, the teacher can modify it to make it work for that child in that classroom. What we find is that compared to a, the same interventions that are used with treatment integrity, in other words, implemented exactly as we designed it, when a teacher makes any changes, the outcomes are better than if you just implemented the programs as originally designed. It doesn't mm -hmm. seem to matter very much how they change it. Yeah. Teachers change it based on their needs and the needs of their classes. Opportunity, um, but again, we call it like an open source analogy because like in source software, you can change it, you can move around, you can change things to meet your needs, and all of our interventions are de designed that way. If you change like 50% of the program, does that work better than a program that has 30% changed? And so we can we have those data too. So it's really exciting to allow teachers to make whatever they need to meet their needs. And this way that you get more teacher buy-in this way. They're, mm -hmm. they're partners now. And it's fun because we've got about 300 partners because uh, the teachers all over are doing this. And uh, theoretical component really makes for better research. But, uh, uh, but it's, it's just super exciting to see teachers to, to, to kind of mine the expertise of teachers as well as they have ownership. It's their program. They've made it meet what they need. And it's very, very exciting for us to, uh, to have teachers actually like doing what we do, but they do their own variation of it. And it's, it's, mm -hmm. uh, it's truly an exciting approach. So um, it's a totally different way to look at clinical research, but it considers issues of, that are problems in psychology, like replication. program is evidence-based. The chances are really good. That's one study that's never been replicated, even been reproduced, meaning in the exact same lab with the exact same procedures. So you have stuff that's not replicated, not reproduced, based on one study, and suddenly we're supposed to call that evidence-based. Our approach, we do, we've done this in three or 400 different classrooms. Again, under different conditions, in different languages. Most of our stuff is done in French, but we do have English uh, request to do it in Spanish too. So the logic here, we have more validity of our, of our program if it works across languages, across cultures, across systems. It's a much more culturally sensitive approach to, to teaching as well. And so we do, in all of our 
programs are related to what we call the academic skills, which are good in school, but it's not reading, writing, and math, like uh, executive mm -hmm. skills, social skills. We don't have a name for our other category, but it's called, we call it kind of a school wiseness, you know, like independent learning, homework, test preparation, following rules, things of nature. And it's been really fun to do this. And I just, I, I get excited when I see the teachers uh, warm up right away. So that, that number one response on your poll of teacher buy-in, this is a good way to do it and be scientific about it because everything is assessed with the same outcome information. So we know if it works or doesn't. And sometimes teachers have their own specific assess that's beyond what we do. And we help them with that. Dr. It's Shaw, really that's fun so, to be in these schools, and it's exciting. It's so that's so interesting, and it reminds me of this concept that I feel as though I'm reading a little bit more and more about lately of practice-based evidence. Would you characterize it that way? As you start with um, an evidence-based practice or intervention, and then over time, as you're collecting more data from teachers and working with teachers and manipulating uh, different variables, is that what you would call um, practice-based evidence? A little bit different is my understanding. Um, practice-based evidence is really what most of us do anyway, to be honest with you. We we do our programs that seem make sense because let's face it, we're school psychologists. We don't see typical children. We see children who are typically outliers. So a lot of times the children we work with, there is no program that's been validated for the types of kids we see quite often. Mm -hmm. So we do programs that are logical, they make sense, and we evaluate their effectiveness. But the program that we use, it's slightly different in that our programs are theoretically based evidence for the programs we're using. Applying it that's different. So they're very much related, but they both address this issue of external validity. And as a research nerd now, um, I used to be a clinician, I'm a research nerd, but that's a problem that's a problem with, with journal articles. We'll have this internal validity, you know, it's reliable and significant differences and the variables are controlled, but that's not the important thing. The important thing is external validity. Is it generalized to the real world? And so your point about practice-based evidence and the open source model, what they have in common is they both are involved in external validity. And you know, how well does the idea generalize to the general population or the population you're interested in? So that's, that's, so that's how they're the same. But uh, that, 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 evidence is really becoming something that actually medicine is buying just as much as education and psychology is. So it's mm -hmm. a big area, but they're, they're, they are related. So cool. We have a couple of viewers uh, commenting also that um, our viewer Megan says that she agrees um, with what we're talking about, that the best way to get teachers on board with evidence-based practices and interventions is to be able to give them a chance to um, mold it and fit it to their needs. And another comment that open source idea that open source idea is such a great concept. Replication is such a problem in educational research, which is true. We have seen in uh, in the press a lot lately. Bad press. Well, and I. <laughs> No doubt. I see the biggest problem also, and there's a guy in medicine who talks about this, name's Ioannidis, but he talked evidence-based practice being hijacked to make money. 
And of course, he's talking about pharmaceutical mm -hmm. industries, but we could be talking about they cherry pick data from studies with very poor methods. They never reproduce or replicate the studies. There's no independent verification. All the studies are by people with financial interests motivated. And, and they use this evidence-based practice to say, oh, we have one study that showed, it's a terrorist study, but it shows something positive. And they use that as the seal of approval, like the good housekeeping stamp of approval, when in fact, there's no evidence that it works, but they're using it to sell their product. And that's where I worry that people are so frustrated with evidence-based practices because it's so hard to do, and the research isn't helping practitioners, that I'm afraid people will give up and just go to this lowest common denominator where people hijack this term. I really worry about that, that we're now, you know, big giant publishing companies, now there's almost a monopoly. They can just say, oh, it's evidence-based. Well, gosh, that's scary, <laughs> and it's it's and it's probably not true, uh, or at least not what I would consider evidence. Um, mm -hmm. And so I, I worry about that, and I just want to give practitioners a, a concept that they could actually do that takes advantage of the wonderful ideas of evidence-based practice and evidence-based interventions. So uh, let's not give up, and let's not uh, allow people to hijack this term and use it for what it is, which is a wonderful idea that can really help children and families. Mm -hmm. That reminds me a lot of um, kind of a conversation that we had when we had Dr. Riley Tillman on for the EBI network and he was talking, we had asked about, you know, these companies that have these boxed interventions kind of and it's research based and these districts are like, oh, well, we have to have this research based, you know, if it doesn't come from a box, if it isn't sold to us from <laughs> such and such company, then we can't use it type of thing. and. Um, so yeah, what uh, what I'd like to ask you: What constitutes evidence-based? If the law requires that we use, you know, an evidence-based uh, intervention, who's defining what that is? How much evidence is enough, and and how do we know? <laughs> Boy, and this is the hard part: just determining what is what is the evidence-based part of it. Um, people who do this as a um, people who do this as a as a career, evaluate research, they can't agree either. So mm -hmm. uh, as a practitioner, I'm looking for independent evidence. I'm looking for somebody who evaluated it's a test, whether it's a, uh, an intervention of any sort, someone who's not does not have a financial interest. They're doing that. Um, honestly, we need so many things. I don't set the bar particularly high. <laughs> I mean, just some independent evidence is probably adequate. All you have to have is really, my understanding is just one study. It doesn't matter who did it, even if it's the person who's making the money on it. But um, my, my, t my personal interpretation for it, you're in good shape if there's at least some replication from an independent body. I'd say that's probably your number one. I'm not asking for a lot. I'll take two studies, the original study and somebody who implemented this who's independent. That's good enough for me because we need all the stuff. Okay, so I, I'm going to throw a question out there. So you're a school psych and you're with a certain level of caseload and you have no funding and there's teachers that need like behavior support. Um, where would you, what would you guide us to be like kind of the first step? 
Um, behavior support, classroom management you were talking about, or a specific child? Yeah, specific child. I'll get detailed on you. Well, um, mm -hmm. What you want is the easiest possible way to collect data. And as a school psychologist, my, I always got the kids who had, oh, let's see, their favorite thing to refer to me was nose picking. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I don't know why. I, I started taking that personally after a while. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and so there we don't really have to worry about evidence-based practice. We know behavioral principles can apply and are evidence-based. So you, what you want to do is have the data collection procedures as e easiest as possible. Mm -hmm. My favorite way to do everything is to put a post-it note on the teacher's desk and have every time, if it was a problematic behavior, every time it occurred, just have them put a tick mark. And then at the end of the day or in the week, if I only went to that school once a week, I pick them up, determine exactly what is the presence of that problem interview the teacher for discriminatory consequences. And I'm, I'm a huge fan of putting data into an Excel file because it's really easy to do. I'll just, I think I've had about a hundred, about a hundred ongoing behavioral cases because people love it when you show them pictures of, you know, the data and say, oh, okay, this intervention is working. In terms of evidence-based practice, if you're using a behavioral model, what you're really trying to do, and I know this is just my experience with a heavy caseload, big assessment load. When you have a heavy assessment load, your primary purpose is to reduce your caseload. And so you're trying to make it so that the way to address problematic behaviors so that this child's not referred for assessment. That sounds terrible, but practice too. Major thing is you want to make it as easy as possible for the teachers, and you always just negotiate. Just talk to them what they can't do, um, and they'll tell you. It's a it's a fairly basic consultation, so I don't feel the need to go into a specific intervention other than oh, functional behavior analysis. That seems to be the, the major thing is what can you do to save a teacher time. That's I, that's what I say to myself with every intervention. How can I save this teacher time? I, I, I want to get if, beyond that. If it's, I'm sorry. Okay. I, I wonder if um, some of the more challenging behavioral intervention um, ideas are the tier one, um, are the tier one behavioral interventions like PBIS or restorative justice or um, something like that where it seems sort of simple at first glance. So sure, we just catch them being good and we reinforce the behaviors we want to see by, um, you know, by uh, sort of rewarding or, or calling out kids for doing the right thing. But they may also then still use punitive practices or things like that. I, I mean, do you think there's a difference between um, how uh, tier one behavioral intervention, evidence-based behavioral interventions are received by teachers? I don't know. I would say the tier ones are the hardest ones to implement, actually, because of perceived need. Um, mm -hmm. Most teachers don't really see these issues as too problematic for the most part. When you get to more severe behaviors that are often tier two or sometimes tier three, People will look to you because they 
feel very desperate. <laughs> that sounds bad, but uh, I think that's when they really listen to you. So always want to make sure that it's not just the out front of your time and expertise and energy, but it's long term too, because like you say, some of these things sound fantastic, but when you try to implement them, you see the the details of it. And you either have to decide if you're going to take on that resource or if the teacher is, and neither one are particularly good options quite often. So you want to keep things as, as short as possible. I like um, kind of the, the flexibility that you were talking about before with having teachers modify things. Um, and so I've seen interventions where, you know, it's a set thing and the, and the student can't advance to the next level, the next reading level, the next set of instructional practices until they pass, you know, a test. And I've had teachers say that, oh, he would, he would be doing so much better on the next lesson and the lesson after that and he would progress, but this one little thing is tripping him up so he's not passing this test so he can't advance and so he's missing out in the, and he's being left in the dust by the other students. And I want to just be like, just pass him to the next level type of thing. But, you know, they want to implement it. It needs to be implemented exactly as as written. And I feel like that kind of, you know, can be a, a barrier. You always have to know what your goals are. And if the goal is for them to pass this one little thing that is hanging up, then that's certainly problematic. But if the goal is to help progress through the curriculum, they should be able to make changes. It really, really depends on what the goal is. Ultimately, what I, I always ask teachers is, what is the goal? What would you like to have accomplished out of this? And if they're going to say, well, every single element has to be passed, that's your goal, good. But if the goal is to make progress through this, um, just to go through this, then, um, then to, you know, this, this may not be a productive approach by, uh, by, by getting stuck on some mm -hmm. important. I have to ask the teacher because as a school psychologist, we don't often know. So the mm -hmm. teachers know if this is this is critical, we must do it this way. Okay, and, but if not, if it's not that critical, then then let's not get hung up on it. Mm -hmm. So uh, to know what our goals are ultimate part of any any type of intervention we do is that there's a different a differential between how the child's functioning and we want them to function so it's uh it's really tough do you know if uh, you're the um, one of if you're one of many universities um, using that open source model and and how do you reach out to schools and teachers? Do, do you do that, or do people um, come to you that want to get involved? Um, well, people come to me any time. Um, I'll tell you, it's not a university-wide. In fact, honestly, I had this idea for about two years, but I was positive it was wrong. <laughs> That's every new idea, the chance about 99% of new ideas are probably wrong. <laughs> Um, <laughs> that's why nobody else has ever thought of them. <laughs> so there are versions of this out there, but I was sure it was wrong. So I was not willing to begin spreading this around until the evidence were showing very clearly that our model led to more positive outcomes for children, especially high-risk children, which is who I tend to work with. A lot of immigrant children, a lot of um, uh, 
borderline uh, children with other disabilities, high functioning autism, etc. So we we were really working in this area, and the evidence started to flow. I I, I do I tend to do a lot of workshops, although I haven't done any for maybe a year, a few, and introduce this idea through workshops, and then teachers will come to me, and school boards will come to me as well. And so it's really fun to do this. And then I just put everything that we validated, I just put it on my website so people can use it. And there for people to use the work. You have four options. Take all the interventions and use them. You don't have to contact me. That's one option. The second option is use it, but make changes and just tell me what changes you made, which is also great. The third option is I'll help you evaluate them with pre-test, post-test. And then the fourth option is kind of the experimental option where we have interventions we've developed yet. So that I couldn't, I can't call them evidence-based practice because they've they're just beginning to be developed. And those are those people are more like research partners. We work with quite people who are willing to implement our experimental procedures, show that it works before we get started. So you can kind of work on those four levels. Any anyone could take anything we have that's been validated because we don't post anything without validation. In fact, we have about four intervention programs that are not on the website. So as soon as the data come in, and they look pretty good, as soon as the data come in, then then if we change it, because then teachers come up with these great ideas and we see, wow, this teacher developed such a brilliant idea, it's better than anything we thought of. So we redo our base, this brilliant idea that a teacher had, and we put we keep posting them and updating them. And so, uh, although unfortunately right now, the biggest changes we're making are in French. Played it to English, I'm afraid, because uh, our, our most updated are French. So what's the best stuff you got that you could tell us about? You know, what are the best interventions? Sure. Suggest for us? Well, the one thing that I'm really excited about is because there's a nine-part theory to developing emotional regulation for children. Ooh. Too many. The teacher said it's too much. So what the teachers did is they compared interventions together. And what we found is they were developing new things. So actually, what we really find is a seven-part approach to teaching the basic emotional regulation skills works better than the nine. So not only did they just reduce the time, but they might have changed their theory. So I know that, that sounds, that's really nerdy, but um, so it's not just that this is helping implementation, but actually they've changed the way we think about the theory. They have better approach theories because mostly they wanted to save time, but they were so good at combining components together and making it sure, making it more compact. Um, they also, a lot of the teachers write posters and make videos and we use those too. <laughs> so we, we love the teacher video and teacher made they make it really great so but but a lot of what they do is how the teachers have shortened the lessons is probably our best thing because our lessons usually go anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes those are long and teachers say, I don't have enough time for that on emotional regulation or on impulse control which is one of our other plans or um, so uh, working as a team there's time 
spend 40 minutes. So minutes. And when usually when they shorten it, what they keep is the most valuable stuff. And it's more efficient, it's better. Sometimes it actually helps us understand things like impulse control a lot better because they're so good at this. The it's it's really exciting, but we are just in the process right now of really making this a big um and have this be a minute where we want to work with schools and in classrooms all over. And so uh, now that I'm is that I'm commenting school psychology forum, uh, I learned a lot because that's a research to practice journal. Uh, now that I'm coming off that, I'm going to be program director as of May. I rotate off of that. So now I'm going to have time to actually take on these ideas and start spreading the word and see if it can work uh, on a large scale. Because right now we have about 1,000 children go through our programs. And uh, the teachers select what they want, by the way. I don't tell them, oh, you must do impulse control. They select out of our, they use the ones they want the most. Um, one thing I'm excited about, we just, go ahead. Sorry, are sorry, they all elementary age? Are they all elementary age kids, or is it early child, earlier, younger than that? Well, first designed this, we wanted it to be for elementary school. However, in Quebec, we have a problem in that a very strange problem because we have parallel school boards, a French and an English school board. What's odd is the French school boards have a very high dropout rate, more so than the English. So we got a lot of pressure to start implementing our programs for the high schools. So although originally everything was designed, or most things were designed for primary school, we have high school versions that are different, just because they wanted us to use our programs to help reduce this really problematic dropout rate. But no, everything's really designed, it's, it's, or most things are truly intended for elementary school. That's really cool. I'd love to. Are, are your lesson plans on um, open source too, or are you publishing yep. them? That's Anybody can use them. Wow. Yeah. Uh, They're on uh, your website? Uh, on my I'm sorry, could you repeat that? Yeah, sorry. Uh, are they on your Resilience Lab, Connections Lab website, or your uh, McGill University website? Right. Uh, let me get this for you. I'll just put it on there so you can post it. Awesome. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, uh, I have a question too. As you're getting that, I don't know if you can multitask and <laughs> get that and, and absorb my question. But yeah. um, you know, this all sounds amazing, and that you know, teachers are making these changes, and these changes are positive. Um, is there a fear of you know, changing things and it not working out and then ah type of thing? Like in education, sometimes we jump on the newest, best, greatest, trendiest thing that let's all teach our kids this way. And then like in 10 years, we realize, oh, whoops, the research came back and that didn't work. <laughs> Is there a fear of that? It happens all the time. And the fear, the, the positive part is we have had many classrooms where teachers try modifications they worked way worse than the generic model. They were a disaster. The teacher kind of took it in the wrong direction, or it just didn't hurt to give them that information of, you know, these, these, it didn't work for your class, or the, the modifications were not effective. 
Sometimes we can say other teachers have done those modifications. They work fine. So maybe there's something about the interaction with your class. So we see a lot of cases that don't work. And that's what we want to know. If we can give that feedback to teachers of, oh, this change didn't work. Let's try a different change. Now, for the whole program, I'm sure there's going to be ways to make it better. I mean, like I say, I was a little nervous to even start talking about this idea and presenting it to general population because it was wrong. Everybody's doing treatment integrity and doing things exactly as the research talks about. That was the big area of the way to do things. And I thought, well, if you're different, ability is you're incorrect. So I always assume I'm wrong. Um, but uh, I think the, the process has a high likelihood of being very, very successful. Individual and modifications, sometimes those don't work. And if they don't, we will have the data to catch it. Practice-based evidence where you try something that may not be evidence-based, but you evaluate it and say, oh, this didn't work. Okay, I'll try something else. So we do want to give that feedback right away so people will know what's going on. We, uh, we owe them that. That's, that's part of the process. And we tell them that. It's okay, but we'll let you know if it, if it doesn't work. We'll let you know if it does work. We will let you know, too. That way they have feedback. We also look at the, um, all the kids. One of my concerns about evidence-based practices in general that they tend to be based on group means, you know, like uh, ANOVAs and things like that, where they, it's like the average scores from pre-test to post-test. Well, that's fine on average. I want to know, does everybody improve? Three kids who got a lot better on whatever intervention it is, and all the others didn't. Or what if there's two or three kids in there with learning disabilities that these ideas are not effective for? Those are the kids who get referred to us. So we can't assume that just because something's effective for a large group, that it's going to be effective for the kids that we work with, with learning disabilities or with ADHD or with autism or things of that nature. So we also look at kids improving or are some of the kids being left back even by our intervention. So we're not just looking for group change. We want to see those individual cases too because we need to know that as school psychologists. So um, I've got to say that I'm kind of super excited about all this nerding and data and everything that we're <laughs> talking about. Um, and teachers really are, the vast majority of them, amazing. And they have so much on their plate. And I feel for them and the amount of paperwork and things that they have to do is kind of insane. So um, when we can give them some power and control, it makes a lot of sense that things are going to go better. So well, one thing we've learned, really. thing we've learned is it's if you just listen, honestly, listening is the best way to show respect for anybody. And if you just listen to them and they say something, even if it's totally off of what you're trying to do, listen to it. There's a Quite often, my biggest thing I say to teachers in consultation is, wow, that's a really good idea. That's like my, <laughs> that's, you know, because the, they, they know what's right. They just need permission sometimes. Mm -hmm. And if we give them the kind of the clay prevention plans that are basic, they, they can mold it. 
kids better than I could because they know their kids and they know themselves and they know what their needs are. So I can't, I don't want to presume to that. I don't want to presume that I know their needs or what those kids are. They, I shouldn't, I don't know them as well as they do. So most of our work is classroom based. Uh, um, that's where we focus on. We would like to do counseling case or counseling types of interventions, of social skills training. Uh, we, uh, one of our new programs for January is we're doing an anxiety reduction program, a stress and anxiety reduction. To see if that works out, because if it does, we'll put that online too. But right now, it's not, it's not evidence based. We don't have any evidence yet. But we'd like it to move to more uh, therapeutic settings as well as classroom. What we're excited about doing. Oh, we're also doing a. We're also adding in a new component where there's going to be a parent component to it. In this, we've never done that before because it's really hard. But I've got a student who really wants to work with parents and wants thinks he can apply this to a parent setting, and so more power to him. I hope he can make it work. It's exciting. That's awesome. Very cool. So really, really exciting stuff, and it's so nice that you know it's online and it's accessible and it's free, and that's what we really like here at Psych Podcast. <laughs> you know, we're all free too. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, the one thing that's what, that's what my wife said. She says, "So, so you came up with this idea that seems to be different and exciting, and there's absolutely no way you're going to make any money off of it." <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so. <laughs> So uh, uh, that's how it goes. But, you know, I, I like workshops, and usually what happens is I'll go to a like a state or a provincial school psychology conference, and then they'll go back to their school board and ask me to come, and that's how I get most of the cases of, or most of the school boards I work with. Very cool. We give back because we collect data. That's part of it. Um, mm -hmm. But. All right. I know we're. If a child doesn't have. Oh, sorry. oh, I'm sorry. We're running out of time, aren't we? Okay. No, no, no. I was just going to say that, you know, if anybody is watching um, and has some last minute questions, that they should start to kind of oh, type okay. into the chat box um, so that we can get to them before we, uh, before we wrap. But that's all. <laughs> it's, it's just for, for, as a researcher, it's an exciting way to collect a lot of data, and it's a new way to validate theory in advanced theory. <laughs> Also, by focusing on how we implement things, it's a way for us to take evidence-based practice and take it to a new level of, but flexible. And, and, and always evaluating, always using our, our metrics that we want, which are usually grades. They're usually uh, things of that nature. So it's really exciting to, to, uh, to, to get involved in this and provide data to teachers so they know that, how things are working. We've learned how professional these people are. And uh, even when we have people who don't really want to do the implementation, I'll ask them if they're interested in being a control group. So we'll collect pre-test and post-test data. They won't do anything, but they get excited about the project. The next session, they're interested in implementing it. So uh, a lot of teachers have been very supportive. And they're just, honestly, they're fantastic. That's awesome. We're so excited. We have a few viewers excited about the upcoming work on anxiety and stress, me included. And you know you're really famous and revered when you're, when you're quoted. So I'd like to just quote you. A viewer shared this favorite Dr. Oh, no. Shaw quote. <laughs> the amount of energy necessary to refute BS is 
an order of magnitude bigger than to produce it. <laughs> I like well, that. <laughs> that's that, that's not my original quote, but I do oh. like that a lot too. I wish I could say who actually said that. I don't remember, but uh, it wasn't me. But I, oh. I like it too because uh, I am tired. We have a lot of uh, query that goes under the guise of evidence-based interventions. Yeah. It's poor evidence and not good evidence. And that quackery, to try to disprove it, takes so much time and energy. There's people out there in our field who are big-time professionals whose entire career is disproving goofy things. <laughs> and, and they're good at it because that's a full-time job. And I like that. I appreciate that. But I'd like to build something, too. And it's not enough to say that something, all the work it takes to disprove something that might be a little uh, BS-y. But the... Uh, it's not enough to do that. You have to replace something better. And so that's what I'm trying to do with this model because I totally agree. That's, I love that quote. I, I, w I honestly wish I could think of who said that, but I have, I have said it many times and passed it along. But uh, not only find out where the things aren't working and might be BS under the guise of evidence interventions, but let's provide another option because right now evidence-based intervention is so difficult to implement and to, uh, we tend to gravitate toward the BS because it's good answers. Well, it's not hopeless. There is a way to address this. There is a way to make evidence-based practice really work in the world. I'm not saying it's easy. It's not easy. A way to do it where we don't have to go to the worst possible research and implement it because we don't have anything else. Mm -hmm. So hopeful. Yeah. All right, before we wrap up, though, I did want to um, mention, just because that quote um, got me thinking, too, uh, that people need to follow you on Twitter because oh. you, <laughs> you, are, you have the most hilarious stuff, like, related to school psychology and related to academia and um, right. time and just random stuff, too. And every time, like, you pop up on my feed there, I'm just, I'm giggling. So, <laughs> that's, my, uh, that's my, that's my... Yeah, that's my that's my train commute because uh, I uh, when I get the train, uh, there's nothing to do and it's hard for me to work. <laughs> and uh, there's my uh, Twitter handle, um, and so I do that. And I also work on a Pomodoro for 25 minutes and take a five minute break. Ooh. And so that way you just work uninterrupted for 25 minutes and then stop for five minutes. And that's the way for me to concentrate. And uh, that five-minute break, I usually put something on Twitter. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that's and usually it's some level of frustration with my uh, inability to think or poor writing skills. So, uh, <laughs> so yes, that's. Uh, well, we appreciate uh, it because it, it brings us all a smile, and it's really um, so nice to be connected. Thank you so much for your time tonight, for all your work. I've shared the links on our Facebook pages, um, which okay. will get tweeted out on Twitter. So I hope everyone out there looks for at Shaw Psych on Twitter and looks uh, for those links to the resources that Dr. Shaw mentioned on Facebook. And we will be back after the holidays. I hope everyone has a wonderful, peaceful, restful holiday. Um, and we'll be back on January 
8th with Dr. Heidi Hayes Jacobs of Curriculum 21. And she's going to talk to us about best practices in um, curriculum design, curriculum mapping, and hopefully also social and emotional learning curriculum and um, what we as school sites can do with all of that. All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thank everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Awesome. <laughs>